future generation acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Since the Industrial Revolution, each generation has been able to pass on improved health outcomes to the next generation. We're not going to do that with mental health. It raises sort of pretty critical questions for us as a society about what's causing it. Twofold is a new podcast series from Future Generation. At Future Generation, our purpose is twofold. We generate wealth for our shareholders by giving them access to Australia's top fund managers. And we change the lives of young Australians by investing around $13 million a year in youth charities. I'm Caroline Gurney, the CEO of Future Generation. Every month, I'll be speaking to leading Australians about their two driving purposes in life. And today, I'm thrilled that we have Sam Harvey, a world-leading psychiatrist who is going to talk to us about the human cost of mental illness and suicide and how we can all improve our mental resilience. Sam, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me. So Sam is the Executive Director and Chief Scientist of the Black Dog Institute, which is one of Future Generation's partners. He is both a clinical psychiatrist and a researcher. Originally from Adelaide, Sam was a GP until he decided to pursue his passion for mental health. But before we perhaps get to that, We've spoken about future generations, twofold purpose. Mm. What are your two main objectives in life? Two main objectives in life. I I think one thing that I try and focus on is around reducing distress and suffering. I think the other one which I've felt strongly sort of guiding me throughout the decisions I've made has been around the role that science has in solving big problems. And I think we've had a wonderful example of that recently with the COVID pandemic of, you know, a challenge like the world hasn't seen in, in, in living memory and the power of science globally to be able to understand what was happening, come up with solutions, save lives. And I think for any of the big problems, particularly big medical problems we face, science has to be the thing that guides us. And that's that's why I did medicine. That's why I'm now doing medical research, because I think that's where the answers to mental health are going to come from. Science has really guided us so much through this pandemic and the way we've actually all reacted to it. But at the moment, you know, I, I see that it's reaching crisis levels when it comes to mental health. Suicide is the leading cause of death among 15 to 40-year-olds in Australia. And you know, I'm reading that mental health symptoms are the number one reason why people, you know, actually go to their GP. These statistics to me are are horrifying. And yet we have such amazing science in Australia and globally. You know, why why do you think we're actually at this point now? Well, it's it's a shift in, in what's the leading cause of health burden within countries like Australia. So part of what we're seeing is actually recognition of the amazing achievements we've done in terms of of health more generally, the control that we have over most, not all, infectious diseases now, the work that's been done around reducing cardiovascular mortality, 
reducing infant mortality, these types of big step forwards. So there's an element of, as those other problems have decreased, what's left is the non-communicable diseases, things like mental health, diabetes, obesity, those sort of issues. But I think what we're now seeing over the last decade in particular is that it's not just that. that Mental health isn't the leading reason people go to their GP because the other things have dropped away. It's that rates of mental health symptoms are increasing across the developed world, particularly amongst adolescents and young adults. And that's a pretty extraordinary thing because by and large, each generation, well, since the Industrial Revolution, each generation has been able to pass on improved health outcomes to the next generation, you know, increasing age, life expectancy, etc. We're not going to do that with mental health. The next generation is going to have more mental health problems than we have. That's a really challenging thing for us to realise and raises sort of pretty critical questions for us as a society about what's causing it. Why isn't there greater access to health? I look at it and I think you have these great minds looking at mental health issues. You know, we've both got, you know, two kids there, you know, their peers are battling depression, anxiety, eating disorders. How can we improve it, not not let it worsen? I'm really interested in terms of what are we telling our younger generations and are they questioning themselves about whether or not they have mental health or is it something else? It's almost certainly a combination of a number of different things. You know, there are societal-wide trends that we know have an impact on mental health. So, so things like inequality of income, inequality of wealth and resources, you know, that, that, that's a predictor of poor mental health outcomes. And in many countries, that's a measure that's going in the wrong direction. And, and so we shouldn't be surprised that mental health is following it. We know that the peak age of onset for mental health problems is in adolescence. And we know that our adolescents now get exposed to absolutely unfiltered information through the internet, through social media. It's very hard to switch that off. And I think we're still sort of learning about what the impact of those things are. But I think also alongside that, there's two other related things. I mean, one is there is more awareness about mental health now than ever. And and, and in many ways, that's a great thing and a necessary thing. But, well, firstly, that influences the way people report their symptoms. And so there's a there's a sort of an unanswered question at the moment about to what extent is just increased mental health awareness changing the way people report their symptoms, and that's what we're detecting. But I think the other more sinister possibility that we're still trying to investigate at the moment is, is there a risk that the increased awareness, the increased discussion about mental health, that that may be having some adverse impact on younger Australians? You know, a, a message about hey, could it be depression? Perhaps you've got depression. Keep your eye out for these symptoms. If you notice them, make sure you go get help. That might be a really useful message for adults. Is it such a useful message for young people to grow up being told that, to grow up with the expectation that distress will lead to mental illness? 
um, and what influence does that have on their their resilience? And I think one of my one of my great frustrations is that mental health is a space where we keep on rolling out things at scale without actually knowing whether they work or not, and sometimes not even knowing whether they might be harmful as opposed to helpful. And there have been historical examples of us rolling out stuff that we thought was a good idea and turned out to be totally the opposite. And I worry that we're still doing that at the moment in lots of schools and other settings. Do you think that's because we feel a need that we have to do something? So if uh, our teenager comes to us and a normal emotion, you know, sadness about something that's happened or, you know, a concern with one of their friends is now being turned around in terms of you have a mental health problem that, you know, that's anxiety, that's depression. That's something that I don't think that we're talking about. Do you think that it, it's it's swung a little bit too far in that term, in terms of the way we're addressing our teenagers because we're just, we worry about them? Of course. I, I, and of course we worry, and I'm certainly not suggesting that we should be going back to the days of telling our kids to have a stiff upper lip and, and not engaging the conversation with them. We shouldn't be surprised that that mental illness and mental health is sort of more complicated than any other area of health. You know, the brain is by far the most complicated of our organs, and we have this problem that that sort of, well, not the problem, the complexity that, you know, if someone gets exposed to asbestos, whether what, what, what that person knows about the risk of mesothelioma and all the rest has no impact in how their lungs will respond to that situation. But that's not the case with mental health. It's this sort of complex melting pot of not just what's going on in people's lives, but also their own thoughts about what's going on in their lives and uh, and the role that that has in amplifying or reducing things. And so I think we just still don't quite understand the cascading effects of this increased discussion about mental health. In a way, what this really points to is the ongoing underfunding of, of mental health, mental health research. I mean. This type of core question would not be allowed to sit unanswered in any other area of medicine. You know, cardiovascular medicine was not allowed to just sit on this question about, well, actually, is lowering cholesterol a good thing or not? Like, it, it, it was answered. Such, such a low proportion of funding goes to mental health research compared to the burden that's having on our society that you know, we're, we're wandering around 10 years after people first started asking this question still without an answer. I think that's that's just really interesting, especially, you know, after the federal budget was handed down, I remember that, you know, Black Dog, you obviously your organisation described it as such a missed opportunity um, for those under 12. Maybe going to that sort of pre-teens, you know, how big is a problem in the sort of mental illness for them? And, you know, how do we get to those that need help really early that that comment about a missed opportunity yes it was specific to that but more generally i think we're all talking about mental health much more and governments are talking about it much more and making lots of announcements but lots of little announcements lots of sort of little programs here and there 
no nobody is standing up and saying mental health is now one of the great health challenges of our generation. We're going to have to invest a serious amount of resources into trying to address this. It's just little bits here and there that I think can create the impression that we're doing something about mental health, like we're talking about all the time, something must be happening, but actually it's not of the quantum required. So that's sort of, that was the overall basis for, for that comment. I think with particular reference to primary schools, the, the most likely time that problems like depression or anxiety are going to present is going to be sort of during high school or just after high school. And that is why in Australia and elsewhere there's been such a focus on that sort of age group of, you know, 14 to 30-year-olds, the headspace centres, all of, all of that work that's being done. And that was appropriate for that to be the focus. What we are now discovering, though, is amongst those kids and young adults that present with depression or anxiety problems, for many of them, there were clear signs that this was coming when they were at primary school. And often when they're at primary school, it's, you know, problems like anxiety that, that, are, that you can see in the kids in the classroom or in home. And the thing is, it's much easier to address those issues then than waiting until they're an adolescent with more entrenched problems and then trying to sort of retrain them to think about things in a different way. You know, the younger brain is is much more malleable and adjusted to learning. That That's why kids who learn a foreign language in primary school are able to speak it fluently, whereas as an adult, you're always grappling to, to get it and it's the same with like trying to teach strategies about reducing anxiety and things like that so it, it's not that primary school programs are able to stop anyone progressing but there's a proportion of kids that we believe you can pick up in primary school and with relatively simple interventions change their trajectory for us at future generation obviously as you know like we are sort of really focusing now on that sort of the charities or the impact um, partners that we can work with that focus on that mental ill health prevention. Because as you say, this space has been really neglected in mental health policy. I mean, I I think I'm right in saying that only 1% of government funding for mental health is for prevention and the rest is very much for treatment, mostly acute crisis care. And obviously we want to, you know, we all want to see fewer young people needing this level of care. So if we can, as you say, you know, get to those young people early with with simple interventions, you know, how how's that going to change the landscape going forwards? What what what's what's that going to look like? It shouldn't necessarily look like a a sort of clunky health intervention dropped into a primary school setting. I think where we need to be moving towards is where. Part of what we do in the education system is to educate our children about how to thrive in the modern world. And that means teaching them skills that they can use in stressful situations. And and so I see it as being ideally integrated with the other things they learn at school. You know, in the same way kids learn how to throw a ball as well as, you know, how to spell and do maths and other things. They should be learning some of these skills. And it shouldn't matter which school you go to. At the moment, 
it's it's a bit of a postcode lottery as to which school you go to, what sort of stuff you're getting, and whether it's based on good evidence or not. And that's not that's not how we should be running an education system. The other key part about what it looks like is that it is morally unacceptable to be going and finding kids who would benefit from an early intervention or treatment and there not being services available to them. As I'm sure many people listening will know, right now in Australia, if you try and find a, a child a psychiatrist or a psychologist specialising in children's mental health, you can have a six to 12 month waiting list to see them. And given what we know about the benefits of early intervention, that's just outrageous. One of the things we're saying to the government, to other people is, okay, well, if you're going to be, you know, building some of the new infrastructure to try and be able to provide services to young people when they need it, that has to be integrated with these ways of finding, connecting with people in school so that it's seamless and not dependent on who you know or how much you can pay. I suppose looking at it and, you know, talking to you over over sort of a few times, like, and one of the big problems we've got in this country is that there, there just aren't enough mental health practitioners to deal with the crisis that we're facing. So how, how are we going to practically and rapidly build that workforce to meet the scale of demand that we're now, that we're now all encountering? That is one of the big challenges because it doesn't matter how many new headspace centres the government funds. If we don't have psychiatrists and psychologists and peer support workers to, to staff them, it'll make no difference. You know, there's a few things that need to happen. As a short-term solution, we need to try and find more efficient ways of using the healthcare staff that we've got. And there are still many ways in which the Australian mental health care system can be quite inefficient. You know, the, the way in which it's set up doesn't necessarily mean that the people most in need get seen fastest or that we use technology efficiently to space out sessions. And there's a variety of practical things that we think could be done to get better efficiency out of the system. Even with that, though, we are going to need, we, well, we do need many more mental health clinicians. And the problem is they can take a while to train up. A, a psychiatrist, you, you pick out a junior doctor who wants to train in psychiatry at six years before they're ready to go, assuming they pass all their exams. And it's a similar sort of length of time for clinical psychologists. So part of it needs to be thinking about, are there bridging courses that we can use for other specialists to, to upskill? That's something that, for example, they did in the UK. Uh, created a new workforce who could deliver some of these psychological interventions? Are we going to be recruiting some people from overseas? But then also, you know, here, like right now in Australia, we have funded training spots for junior doctors to train as psychiatrists that we can't fill. We can't find junior doctors who want to come and train in psychiatry. There's a number of reasons for that. One, they're voting with their feet about what they see. You know, they see the mental health system as being chronically underfunded with staff who are burning out. If you're right at the start of your career, why would you want to do that rather than some other area of medicine? Um, and it's also, you know, it's about the way in which we select people into medical schools. You know, we select we select people who want to go off and, and be surgeons and 
renal physicians and other things, we don't select people who are interested in mental health. And so it's not surprising that then we've got spots at the end we can't fill. But it's but from what you're saying, you know, it is it is actually doable. It's just you just really need the will to make it happen, and that's obviously got to come from the government. Yes, you need the you need the will, and and it's going to take investment, investment of time and money to to do. And I think at the moment we've been um, not fiddling around the edges. That's unfair because Australia's done some really impressive reform of parts of our mental health care system. But the issue of who is staffing it hasn't ever been addressed properly. We're incredibly lucky in this country, though. We, you know, we've had some amazing prevention campaigns from Slip Slap Sloth or, you know, as, as you've discussed with, you know, in terms of cardiovascular disease. On, on top of everything that we've talked about, you know, COVID, bushfires, floods, earthquake, I, I see a lot of people really struggling and it would be remiss of me not to ask you what your top tips are for retaining your mental health. It's interesting that as a psychiatrist you get asked this because obviously um, almost a prerequisite of most people walking through my door is that the time for prevention has passed. You know, Generally, most of the patients I'm seeing are people who we're, we're talking about how to treat their existing mental health problems. Um, and, and that in itself is an interesting, an interesting anecdote, I think, around that discussion that Future Generations is looking at about prevention and how do we normalise prevention in mental health. But in answering your question, I think most of us know what are the activities or themes that help us feel better. Um, and, and that varies. You know, for some people, it's going for a walk. For, for other people, it's listening to beautiful music, playing chess, whatever. You know, we've all got our things that we enjoy and, and that make us feel good. I think unless you're setting aside time for those things, they don't happen. In the longer term, that's what, that that sort of behavioural activation of knowing what are the behaviours that help you remain well and prioritising them, that's what helps. We're social creatures and we, there's mountains of evidence around the protective effect that support from those around us can have on our mental health. That's been really challenging over the last couple of years because that hasn't been there. But I think, again, I think prioritising that and finding ways to connect with people that matter to you is a really worthwhile thing to be doing in terms of your long-term mental health. Do you walk with friends? You, you know, you have the app. I mean, is this something that, I mean, obviously the research is there, but this is, and you practice it as well? I do. I wouldn't say self-discipline is a strong suit for me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm never, I'm not. I cannot believe that at all, Sam. I'm sorry. No, no. (laughs) um, But, but I do, you know, I, um, like like everyone, you know, I have a, a busy life, but I I stop work at six o'clock and I spend time with my kids and then if there's stuff to do, I do that afterwards. And that's just a sort of a firm rule that I have so that I get to spend that time with them and that that, that recharges my batteries. And, um, so- and yes, if, every week I go out and I, <laughs> well, 
I call it playing golf, but it really is <laughs> a walk in the chat with some close friends. And yeah, it makes a difference. So, I mean, obviously, you just brought up the fact that you're a father of two, I mean, 12 year old and an eight year old. So, you know, how are you ensuring your children have got that mental resilience, you know, that they've got to cope with the world that we live in, you know, like they're obviously at school and it's all about iPads and video games, but also exercise and, you know, getting a love of learning, all of those things. So, you know, what are you talking to your kids about or is it very, or is it far more practical, you know, like you do things with them and you, you know, show them, you know, a different way of life like you take them out you you walk through gardens I don't know what do you do I know what I do with my 14 year old but hello hopefully it's the same again when I look around me I'm not sure I'd always take parental advice from psychiatrists but um I think what really matters for kids is firstly unconditional love and support and and you know, there are numerous ways that you can make sure kids are aware of that. But that sort of, that is such a rock for people. And, and clinically, I, I see so many people whose part of the narrative of where their difficulties with emotions began was because of their experiences of inconsistent, unpredictable responses from their parents. So I think that's, you know, that's a core thing for me. I think another thing that's really important for kids is for them to be able to find things that they're good at. And and that has, I'm, I'm not always sure our education system is, is great at, at that. You know, if, if you're not good at reading and maths at primary school, but there's other things that you're great at, sometimes I think as a parent, you've got to help your kids go out and find those things. I, I guess the other thing, like far and away, the best resilience training is learning from tricky situations. You know, that's how we, as you know, that's how we develop skills. And so I think one of the tricks with parenting, at least I hope one of the tricks with parenting, is around allowing your kids to be tested and and to come out you know to learn and to thrive from those but not be overwhelmed and that can be a a a balancing act about when you dive in and rescue them and when you say actually this is a really good learning experience for them um and i think we all kind of struggle with finding that sweet spot oh sam i i I agree with you there i mean I, i you know love and support is just so important with with our kids and you know, what you said, it, it resonates with me and I'm sure it resonates with, you know, anybody that would listen to this. But I, I could talk to you for absolute ages because, you know, mental health is one of those areas that we never used to speak about. And now it's it, it's really something that we discuss with our family and friends, which I think is so important. And there is now, you know, funding going into these areas, but obviously there's never enough. Unfortunately, our time has come to an end, but I just want to say thank you very much. And um, I'm really delighted that you have been, you know, one of our charity partners from, you know, with Future Generation. And I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Well, look, thank you very much for having me on. And, And on behalf of the Black Dog and the mental health sector more generally, thank you both to Future Generations and to all of the people who help support you and the work you do, because it 
it does make a very real tangible difference in the in the stuff that we and other organizations are able to do if somebody needs help or if they feel a you know a friend or a family member where should they go what should they do to get resources yeah look it's a really it's a good point to to end on we've we've spoken a bit about the challenges in the mental health care system in australia what's really important for people to understand is we've got great treatments available for depression, anxiety, for other mental health problems. Every day in our clinic, we see people's lives turned around. And the biggest challenge is getting people to come forward for help when they need it. So if people have got symptoms, or if they think they might benefit from treatment, there's a couple of options. Simplest one is to speak to your GP, they will know what are the services available locally. If you don't feel able to speak to your GP, if you go to the Black Dog Institute website, We've got an online clinic there where you can answer a series of questions and then get recommendations or a report that you can print out to take to your GP to start the conversation. And then lastly, if you need to speak to someone right now, then Lifeline and Beyond Blue have 24-hour phone services that are, are ready to provide that support straight away. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you.